0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So let's go back to Bethlehem. We're going to time travel back to the time of Christ. Now it's a very familiar story as all the Christmas stories are. And I think sometimes as much as we love them and they warm our hearts, we can sometimes miss some of the deep theological truths that come out of them. There is really no reason why in the year 2021, and southeast of England here in Hastings I should be talking about a tiny rural village in the Middle East and the only reason I'm doing that is because something happened there that changed the course of history. That is why everyone speaks about Bethlehem still. Reminds me of Lewis's famous words in the last battle, his Narnia book, he said once in our world a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world and he was absolutely right about that. The hymn that we sung, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Philip Brooks wrote that hymn for his church in 1868. He he was really just writing it for his Sunday school. He was trying to do something fun for his Sunday school. He had the church organist add the music. She did that in one night and it premiered on their Boxing Day service that year. And neither of them ever had any idea that it would be used again the next year or that it would catch on at all. It was just for the Sunday school. But I guess that just shows us the power of the story of what happened in Bethlehem all those years ago. Let me just read to you two of my favourite verses and just think of these words as we get into this story. How silently, how silently, this wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, meek souls still receive him, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, "'Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel.'" I want to look at this story, and for me, I find it fascinating. I love these stories, the infancy narratives, as we call them in the Gospels, because you will see so many different strands of history, of prophecy, just converging upon this one spot in this one particular day, and I'm hoping I can bring some of that out for you today. It's basically, you'll see God's sovereignty, God's providence over history, Yet at the same time, you'll see how he does this using the choices of men on this earth, unsaved men particularly. As the Apostle Paul said, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. And we're going to see just what that little phrase, the fullness of time, means this morning. So what we're going to do is read the entire narrative in Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And then I'm going to go immediately on and read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 6 so I think they'll be on the screen if you have a Bible Luke chapter 2 and this is basically both of the the, the birth narratives that we find in the Gospels. So Luke chapter 2 it says now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn and in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened but the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold i bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people for today In the city of David there has been born for you a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, just as had been told them. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of, Ju- of Judah in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah is to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that is the story of Jesus' birth combined from both the Gospels. And as you can see, The wonder in that story, Mary wondered, she treasured these things in her hearts. the shepherds glorified God, the angels came to earth and sang that heavenly anthem, which is actually the only time we really find that happening on earth. We see glimpses into heavenly realms occasionally, Isaiah 6 and Revelation, where we see the angels and the heavenly host praising, but this is one of those times where they came to earth and they did it in front of these shepherds. Something amazing happened all these years ago. We see some wonderful characters. We see the shepherds, we see the wise men, we see Herod, we see Caesar, we see all these different people from all these different empires and histories, all working independently, influencing each other to bring the fullness of times for the Messiah to be born. Make no mistake, God is in charge of history. History is ultimately moving to his ultimate fulfillment. You may have heard people use the phrase in this day and age, you're on the wrong side of history, you ever heard that? Um, usually in relation to some moral or social issue. In reality, there is really only one wrong side of history. You're either on Jesus' side or you're on the, you, the other side. That's basically it. You are either for him or against him. But make no mistake, history is progressing towards God's plan and we see in the child at Bethlehem what that plan is and we're going to look at that now. Now notice, in the Matthew account, the wise men come to Herod, where is he going to be born? And they consult the scribes, the Pharisees, who consult the Scriptures, and they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Micah 5, verse 2. This is one of the Christmas prophecies. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel, and his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity this is what we looked at on Wednesday night Micah is a minor prophet again writing hundreds of years before Jesus uh, was ever on this earth the book of Micah is one of those books that's structured around a cycle of judgments and then deliverance as a lot of the Old Testament is he is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah which is the southern kingdom of Israel at this time They are in the south of Israel and they are currently watching their brothers in the north of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, be overthrown by what at that time was the most brutal empire in the whole world, the Assyrian Empire, and they were going into captivity. Thus, if you were looking, it's not a far distance from the south to the north of Israel, you can pretty much do it in a few hours and your northern brothers are being overtaken by the horde of Assyrians and being taken into captivity, you'd imagine you'd feel pretty insecure at that moment. Your doom is pretty close. And Micah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah at this time about their impending fate. However, often in the midst of these prophecies, he speaks of deliverance. And this prophecy, he is speaking of Israel's ultimate deliverance. And it is not a situation, it happens to be in a person the hope for Israel is a person, it is one who comes from Bethlehem and more precisely from the region of Judea. And it says one who will be a ruler in Israel and that's a very key verse there. It also goes on to say that this one, his origins will be from eternity, the, uh, days of everlasting. It speaks of the supernatural character of this person being born. We looked at this last week. Now the prophecy speaks of this one who will rule Israel. And if you're speaking to Jewish people at this time and you're speaking of the Messiah who will come and rule Israel, the fulfillment of this would be in what they call the millennial kingdom, the time of the kingdom when the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. We speak of this as something that happens after the second coming. After the king returns, he sets up his kingdom. That is the the chronology that we have there. So we see here a prophecy of the second coming, yet Bethlehem, speaks very clearly of his first coming, because this is where it's about him being born on this earth. We see here the first and second advent combined in one prophecy, and this is something that we actually see quite frequently in the Bible, although those events are separated by thousands of years. And this is one of the reasons why the Jewish people got confused about this. The Jews were anticipating a messiah and a ruler, a king, someone who would come to rule Israel in this day. And if the Messiah is there ruling Israel, then the Romans are not going to be calling the shots. You can see their logic there. This is one of the reasons why they did not accept Jesus as their Messiah, because he was humiliated by the Romans, you see that. He was stripped naked and hung on a cross. For them, that was not the king who was coming to throw off the Romans. You can understand their logic as much as we know there's a misunderstanding in it. They did not understand the full pattern of the messianic program there, but that is at least one of the reasons why uh, they rejected that. They did not understand the mission of the first advent, the mission of Bethlehem, which was ultimately to be raised for a sacrifice for the world. But they should have understood this because it is integral to their system. So we will see this hinted at at many ways through this issue of Bethlehem. We will see his first coming. We will see the issue of sacrifice. And this, you just read um, the text that we read in Micah, you don't immediately see the concept of sacrifice there. Uh, It's not actually in in that text there, it just speaks of the ruler as king. But there are some clues, I believe, in the text that will show us that we can speak of this issue. And we also see the kingly rule in the second coming. But Bethlehem was the setting for this ruler, it says a lot to us. And when we're looking at a subject in the Bible, uh, in in the field, the discipline of biblical theology, we like to trace themes throughout the Bible. And Bethlehem is a fascinating study throughout the Bible. Remember, it's really a nothing town in the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's about five miles from Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Um, There was not really much to be said about it. It was just a a small outback town at this time, yet so much happened here. If you turn to Genesis chapter 25, please. This is one of the first times we see Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem mentioned. It's a pivotal portion. I'll set the context so we don't have to read the whole narrative there. You remember the story of um, Jacob. He stole his brother Esau's birthright by deceiving their father and Esau was not happy about this, wanted to obviously hurt him. Jacob was told to flee. He fled, and there's he has those stories where he eventually ended up finding his wives, raising his family, and doing all that sort of thing. And then the narrative comes that it's time he gets told to come back, and there's that very tense meeting where Jacob and his family are coming back, and Esau rides out to meet him, and it turns out that Esau's heart has changed, and everything's okay in that regard, and the narrative carries on. Jacob carries on to a place called Bethel, where the Lord appears to him, and that is where he has his name changed to Israel. And that's also where he confirms the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, the the promise made to Abraham, that the land particularly, including Bethlehem, would be given to him and his descendants. And then notice, and this is a part that's never really talked about in this story, but it's pivotal for us understanding this today, uh, also amazing. And remember, this is right back into early sort of biblical history here, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is way before the prophet Micah in that respect. Genesis 35, pick it up in verse 16. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was, and when there, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, from now, for now you have another son and it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephras, that is Bethlehem. And that's where we, we, we call it Bethlehem Ephratha, that's where that comes from. But what I find this fascinating is that Rachel, Jacob's w- wife there, gave birth on the, on the way to Bethlehem. This is one of our first mentions of this place. And she had a son. And she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. However, Israel, Jacob at this time, called him Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand, which we know is a title of Jesus Christ. Take your seat at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Often throughout the New Testament, you'll see Jesus referred to as the one at the right hand of God one at the right hand of the Father. So think about this, what we have. All those years before any of these things, any of these prophecies of Bethlehem even played out, we have the prophetic pattern for us. An Israelite was born in Bethlehem whose title was the son of my right hand. Prophetically picturing for us that son of the right hand who would be born in Bethlehem all these years later. It's just amazing when you see how this history has been patterned throughout the Bible. Thousands of years before Christ, he was there. Bethlehem is significant in the Bible. Again, we encounter Bethlehem during the days of the judges in Israel. Remember the charming story of Ruth and Boaz, ancestors of Jesus Christ, a destitute widow, a man from Bethlehem. He was a kinsman redeemer. That means he was a near relative, one who had the right to redeem property for a family. He was from Bethlehem, and we know the story. Ruth was a Moabitess, and she was widowed, and he took he loved her basically and married her and redeemed the family back, uh, the land back for Naomi. And if we know that picture, we know that it again points us to Jesus Christ who is called our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. He is a relative of mankind but also of God and he will one day redeem back the earth for us. That is what Revelation is about. We spent a lot of time studying that. We see that pattern again laid out for us in Bethlehem. There's no mistake that this all happened in Bethlehem. Rachel giving birth to Benjamin, now Ruth and Boaz in Bethlehem. You see this pattern building throughout the scriptures. This is just a tiny nothing town, five miles from Jerusalem, but everything is being laid out to happen in Bethlehem. That's why we still talk about Bethlehem today. But yet we see more associated with Bethlehem in the kingly line. Ruth and Boaz would go on, I think it's their great grandson, also came from Bethlehem. We call him King David. You'll find his story in the scripture. 1 Samuel 16, Samuel the prophet was told to go and anoint the king of Israel. It says, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So notice that, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for he will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day. And notice this pattern here. Here we have a king born again in Bethlehem who is now specifically said to be the one who will one day rule over Israel as the king and yet this king was also a shepherd. We see the pattern here that's forming, pointing us towards a future king of Israel, another descendant of David, another who will be born in Bethlehem, another who will also be a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, he said in John 10, didn't he? You see, these patterns are just amazing when you see them drawn out of the scriptures like this. Even the name of Bethlehem points us towards Jesus Christ. Bethlehem, if you don't know, means house of bread. Bread is quite an important thing throughout the scriptures if you do a word study on bread it was often used as a spirit uh, a symbol of spiritual sustenance it was used in the wilderness to sustain his people the manna that fell from heaven it's used in the temple rituals you had the table of showbread in the tabernacle and in the in the temple there it's used in the passover it was bread that jesus picked up and said this is my body do this in remembrance of me and he broke that bread on and on a, on it goes and it's often said when you eat this bread Jesus actually he changes it and he says when you eat my flesh he's making a very strong analogy that eating bread is symbolic of exercising faith in Jesus Christ this is why in John 6 verse 47 he says truly truly I say to you he who believes has eternal life I am the bread of life your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat it and not die I am the living bread that came out of heaven. So you see this pattern again being foreshadowed for us in this amazing city, town rather, of Bethlehem. Then this is just how rich the Bible can be when you study these themes, when you see how God has ordained it, inspired it, everything connects together. Hundreds of years later, we see another descendant of King David now. We've seen right back to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the days of King, uh, King Saul, King David, all the way through Ruth and Boaz and we're up to this time now and now those scriptures that we read in the Gospels we are seeing another descendant of King David, Mary and Joseph on their way back to this small town once again, Bethlehem and it says now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth and I find this fascinating in the sense if you take a a bird's eye view of it who was Caesar Augustus? Remember we looked at this when we did our Philippian study. His original name was Octavian. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Most people know roughly the story of Julius Caesar, assassinated, really w- led to the war between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. And Octavian fought a war that we call the Battle of Philippi against the republican forces of Brutus and Cassius and he was triumphant and that was really the end of the Roman Republic and that is what began the Roman Empire which is what we read about in that first verse there. Octavian changed his name, he became the first Caesar, the first emperor and he was Emperor Augustus and it was because he won that battle, because his adopted father was assassinated that he started the empire, and that is why he had the power to issue a decree across the whole of the Roman Empire that everyone had to go back to their birth towns to take this census, this national census. God used that decree at precisely the right time in history to get Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem at precisely the right time to coincide with her labor. You see, and you can't tell me that God is not in charge of history. I mean, this is, it's just uh, fascinating when you see this. And we see this plan stretching back throughout the centuries in Matthew's account too. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I find the magi, again, fascinating characters adding to the story of this. Who were the magi What's the East talking about and why were they looking for the king of the Jews? These are three very important questions. The Magi were in fact an ancient Persian priesthood. Magi is a a Persian word. The East is referring to the Parthian Empire. That was the rival empire of Rome. Rome never conquered the Parthian Empire. They were almost equally as powerful and they were continually at odds with each other on the border towns. Israel was kind of stuck in the middle of that, basically. We know the Magi. They're actually mentioned a few times in the scripture. If you turn to Jeremiah 39, verse 3, you read about the Magi. It's one of these weird name uh, texts that we don't often pay much attention to. Jeremiah 39, verse 3. It says, then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate. Nergal sar Samgar Nebu, Sar-Sakim, the Rab Saris. And look at this person. Nergal sar the Rabmag, And all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. Now, Rabmag is an unusual word. It's, it's an untranslated word in this, in this text here, so they transliterate it. It basically means that they didn't know what it was at the time, so they just spelt it out the best they could translate it like that. But having uh, the value of time and more study and more writings, we now know what it means. Rub basically means chief, and magus is the plural of magi. This was the chief of the magi this was the head of the priesthood of the magi and like i said it was originally a persian word actually but remember the persians got taken over by the babylonians and the priesthood because they wielded so much power they were basically just absorbed into the babylonian empire and that is why do you remember the story of daniel and all these people where you see uh nebuchadnezzar the babylonian king having these dreams and he's not sure about these wise men that he's inherited so he puts them to tests you know, tell me my dream, what does it mean? And, he, and you have these, all these wonderful uh, episodes going on throughout the book. These were the magi, the magi of Babylon. They were heathen, pagan physicians, priests, uh, religious leaders, the learned men of the empire. And it's actually said that descended from them was a line of very evil priests and sorcerers, um, in tradition, they say that Haman, the, the, the evil person we read about in the book of Esther, who tried to um, kill the Jewish people, was one of the magi. And in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, you meet a magician called Bar-Jesus. They say that he was from this same line of hereditary priesthoods too. That's just tradition, but that's uh, the idea that they have there. So, with that in mind, it's very unlikely that those particular people would be looking to worship find the king of the Jews and to worship him. So we ask ourselves, what's going on here? And like I mentioned, you remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar overthrows the empire, takes over, inherits uh, all these priests, but he also took quite a few young teenagers captive from Israel and brought them into his kingdom. And one of those people was a man named Daniel. Remember the story, we have a whole book about it in the Bible. We know that God was with Daniel. He had the talent of interpreting these dreams. He rose up through the ranks of the Babylonian Empire to the point where it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon he made this Jewish prophet, the rab, the chief head of the Magi. Now think about what that is. This pagan priesthood, Daniel was suddenly put of the head by order of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. So it is most likely that part of his duties. We know Daniel was faithful. We know he didn't compromise even in the midst of Babylon. It is probably more than likely that whilst he was head of the Magi, he started a group within them that were God-fearing. He taught them the prophecies, particularly his own prophecies from the books of Daniel, that something was going to happen and they needed to worship the king of the Jews. Basically, he started a sect, you could say, within this priesthood of true believers who were looking for the king of Israel. And that is why we see all these years later this representation of Magi coming from the Parthian Empire saying, where is the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. That goes all the way back to Daniel that's why the Magi knew about this. There's no other reason really why they would be looking for him. So that, again, I find just absolutely fascinating. Using all these different empires, the pagan king of Nebuchadnezzar, the Persian priesthood that were formerly pagans, again now all coming to convergence at this exact time 2,000 years ago. History is moving towards God's plan. It's again fascinating. But let's change gears now. What about the idea of Messiah. Again, it's going to be a slightly shorter message, we won't be too much longer here, but what about the idea that Messiah would be a sacrifice? We didn't read that in Micah chapter 2, we know he's going to be a ruler, we know he's going to be king, but what about a sacrifice? Everyone was looking for the king in Israel at this time. That is what they wanted. Remember, we we studied uh, Hanukkah a little while ago, and we saw how the Maccabees overthrew uh, Greek rule, and they threw off Antiochus Epiphanes, and they reclaimed Jerusalem, and they set up independent rule, The the Jewish people were looking for another Judas Maccabee. They they wanted their Messiah to do the same thing, to come, get rid of the Romans. They would then rule over Israel. They'd have free independence. That's what they were looking for. That's why Jesus, for them, did not fit the bill. They didn't understand how this king would die, be, be humble, be humiliated. It just didn't fit their understanding. And they weren't entirely wrong in the sense, what I mean is that there are plenty of prophecies that talk about the Messiah, He will come and do those things one day. He will rule as a king. He will overthrow those who are usurping his earth. But they had the timing wrong and they were too focused on now and then politics of the Greek and who could control the Sanhedrin and whether they had those laws and all that sort of thing that they missed this. But it's a very important area. So what does Micah 5.2 tell us about sacrifice? What do we see about Bethlehem that teaches us about sacrifice? I think there is a clue in the narrative of Luke. So turn back to Luke chapter 2 for me, please. I want you to see this. It says, In the same region, verse 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now we all have heard about the shepherds. We've seen nativities, haven't we? We've seen the shepherds. Everyone knows about these shepherds. But there's some historical cultural background here that sheds an absolutely new light on why these shepherds, why these shepherds here. This is the greatest news in the history of the world that is just happening. You would think that it would probably be declared in Jerusalem. Really the angels should have gone to the high priest maybe, they should have gone to Herod, they should have gone to Caesar Augustus to say your time is up, the king is here. But no, they went again to the fields surrounding Bethlehem to these group of outcasts really five miles from Jerusalem. Remember, at this time, shepherds were were pretty despised in Jewish culture. It was not a a sought-after profession. There was very negative connotations with shepherds. They were unskilled. They were untrained men. They were always dirty. They always smelt. They were always on the fringes of society. They couldn't keep the kosher laws properly because of their profession, so they were always shunned. They were outcasts. Yet, there's something amazing about this. Why did the angels appear to these shepherds? Now, this was Alfred Eidersheim, a Jewish believer back in the 19th century, who brings to light one regulation of the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a collection of oral laws, oral traditions, dictates on how they obey the Torah, things that they do and don't do, uh, going back uh, well a long time, basically. And in tractate 80, he brings out this, where he's talking about sheep and shepherds and, the, and how they should maintain their flocks. And he says, expressly, the Mishnah expressly forbids the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel, except in the wildernesses. And the only flocks otherwise kept would be those raised for the temple services. And this is absolutely fascinating. Jerusalem and Bethlehem were not the wilderness. They're not the Engedi. They're not the, they were not the wilderness. They were very centred to the center of Israel. So they were not the ordinary flocks that were being kept around the fields of Jerusalem. These were the flocks that were under the care of these particular shepherds that were sheep that were to be used for the temple sacrifices. And the chief, the main temple sacrifice that Israel did was the Passover sacrifice. And they would have a national lamb that was to be raised. And yes, everyone had to get their own lambs, bring it to the temple and do their own family Passovers, but during that day on Passover, they would have a national lamb where the priests would take this lamb and it had to be perfect and all the regulations for that. And it would be sacrificed for the nation at this time. And that lamb would have come from these fields. These fields five miles out of Jerusalem, the only, shepherd, the only sheep that were allowed within such a vicinity of the, centre of the urban centres of Israel at this time, and these would have been the ones that we would have been uh, looking at here. And again, I just find this fascinating. These were the lambs that were being raised. These were the shepherds that were raising lambs for temple sacrifices. And thus I believe it is absolutely no surprise that the first people that the angels go to is these people who have dedicated their lives to raising the temple sacrifices. And it's no surprise that when we continue in the narrative, the very first people to come and worship the newborn king are the ones whose lives have been spent raising those lambs that would be sacrificed for the sins of the nation. This is why I believe it's announced to the shepherds there. That is why these shepherds are so pivotal to the narrative, and this is how the concept of sacrifice is brought into the story of Bethlehem. You have, you have these temple-sacrificed lambs, these shepherds whose lives have been devoted, they've been pushed out of Jewish society because of this, yet you could say they're actually doing the most important thing in the whole of Israel at this time, making sure that the nation had those lambs for sacrifices. And then you get these angels who appear to them in the, in the night time when they're doing what they do and announce to them that the Saviour has been born. The Messiah has arrived and this points to the fulfillment that the time of animal sacrifices would soon be at an end. No more would they be needed, these shepherds, to raise year by year these lambs for this ritual sacrifice. The Messiah has come. The King is here. This was truly good news and great joy for all people. And it's at this moment that we see the angelic chorus heard on this earth for the first time. Glory to God in the highest and, among, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Those temple sacrifices were made to make peace amongst God and the nation. The national Passover sacrifice was sacrificed for the whole nation. And now these angels are here telling these shepherds whose lives have been devoted to that the Messiah is here now, the Saviour, and now he is here. Peace can be made between God and man, all men, through what this one is going to do. It's just wonderful. And we miss this quite often when we're telling the Christmas story. The wonder of this story is amazing. And then it's no wonder that we see the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as he told them. They hear this news and then we read the narrative. We have to go to Bethlehem. We have to see this for our own eyes. They come, they see it, they worship, they adore, they leave praising God. And should that not be the pattern when we hear, when we encounter the living God, we worship, we adore, and we go away again praising That's our story, really, as Christians on on this earth. And one day, we know that this king will come again, and that will be a time of praising for us, too. But I want us to step back now as I bring this together, just to think of all this with that bird's eye view. Thousands of years before any of this, in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the pattern of Bethlehem was set. We saw the son Benjamin, the son of his right hand. Think of what transpired from that, too. Remember the whole narrative. They sold Joseph. He had to go down. He was picked up by the slave traders, taken to Egypt. He rose up in Egypt to be the chief man in charge of the grain. The famine came across the land. Jacob still in Israel sent his sons to try and buy food to to make Israel survive. And what was the story? Do you remember that I won't go through the whole thing, but in the end Joseph knew he wanted to see Benjamin. But Jacob didn't want to send his youngest son, Benjamin. So he held him back that first time. And then he did a trick and everyone was in trouble, basically. And he said, if you bring your youngest son here, I'll let you here. And then Benjamin comes. He sees Benjamin. He weeps. And then Jacob ends up coming into Israel, too, when he knows it's okay. That was Benjamin that really was the instigator to that, the son of his right hand. And what did that do? That saved Israel. Coming into Egypt preserved Israel, fulfilled the prophecy where it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. This is the pattern again for that being set here. All of those things happening at this time, this led obviously to the years of slavery. This led to the Passover, the Passover lamb that we've seen patterned, the bread, the Passover bread that we've seen patterned. This led to the exodus. This leads us out into the wilderness wanderings, the manna that came down from heaven. This leads us out eventually back into the land under Joshua. This leads us to the time of King David, Moabites, the Ruth. This again, a woman who married a Bethlehemite. On and on it goes up to the prophet Micah. He was looking at the face of this uh, Assyrian empire. And then we have the Persian empire. We have the Magi. Then we have Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire. We have Daniel, a little teenager being taken hostage that would one day rise up in the Babylonian empire. He would start a sect by teaching biblical prophecy to this hereditary Persian pagan priesthood and thousands of years later, we'd see them seeking the king of the Jews. Caesar Augustus. We've seen the Roman empire now brought into this the Battle of Philippi, the assassination of Julius Caesar, Octavian's victory against Brutus and Cassius, the beginning of the Empire of Rome, and eventually Augustus's decree to bring the pregnant Mary all the way back to Bethlehem. Everything across history, thousands of years, different empires, different worlds, everything converging to fill the plan of God to bring the Jesus into the world, like Paul said, when the fullness of time came. Everything that God had there, it's just amazing. Now, and I still, we've, I've only just given you a glimpse, really, of what I believe that term fullness of time really means. But hopefully you can just see, you, you have to bow before the king. <laughs> I guess I can say it like that. There's just no other choice when you see this is his world, this is history, and although Satan is active in this world, the prophecies of Bethlehem tell us one day the king is coming, he will be a ruler on this earth, and we know that, we're going through revelation and studying this as we do it, but everything here converged in that small town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago at the precise time, and what transpired there really set the course of history in a different direction. God is now reaching people, making them citizens of his kingdom in preparation for that day when he comes and sets up his kingdom, and this is good news to all men Christ has come. A way to have peace with God has been made. Sacrifice for our sins through repentance and faith we can be born again and become citizens of the kingdom. And this is what we sing about with all those carols. Christ is come. Hope was born. And i would leave you with one question. Are you ready for his return? We've read of the king in Bethlehem and one day that king will come to Jerusalem and take his throne. And you need to be ready for that. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.